Welcome to episode number 33 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. We're creating a global community around process safety and industries handling combustible dust. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Cloney. Today's episode, we're talking about explosion and fire safety in 3D printing and additive manufacturing applications. And we're doing that with Jason Reason, Director of Combustible Dust Services at Seam Group, which is formerly Llewellyn. Jason, thank you for coming on the show today. No problem. So, those of you who have been listening for a while, we had Jason on uh, 20 episodes ago, actually, on episode 12, talking about dust hazard analysis, qualified persons, education and training, who's qualified to be inspecting and, and doing analysis in combustible dust uh, areas, areas that are containing combustible dust. That was a great episode. I'd encourage you to go listen to that uh, if you're interested in that whole area, which is of immense important value to, to combustible dust safety overall. I won't get too much into Jason's backgrounds. It's covered in that episode, but suffice to say that it's very extensive. He's part of Indiana OSHA for 13 years, I think, 2000, 2013. He's part of several technical committees. He's been a consultant since uh, leaving OSHA. He's chairman of the NFPA 664 and wood processing industries. He also does a lot of work in 3D printing and additive manufacturing industries related to combustible dust. Um, he's one of the kind of the most knowledgeable people I know in this area. And that's why it's a great to have him on for this topic today. So just kind of by way of introduction, Jason, um, maybe we'll just lay the groundwork. What is 3D printing and additive manufacturing for those of us that may not have you know, heard of these industries yet? Yeah, yeah. And um, before I get into that, you know, a little bit more about my experience, just so everyone knows, in additive manufacturing anyway. I've been doing combustible dust now for almost 14, 15 years total, but uh, with OSHA and as a consultant. but I actually got into 3D printing, believe it or not, about four and a half years ago. So we did something for a printer manufacturer. That was one of our first things that we've done. And since then, it's kind of ballooned into pretty big. And uh, thus far, I've done over 100 additive manufacturing DHAs or helping people design things. So... I've been doing a lot in additive manufacturing and 3D printing, uh, especially in the last uh, few years. So, but um, just figured I'd supplement that. I'm, I also sit on the task group to rewrite the additive manufacturing chapter for NFPA 484 that's currently going on right now. That was NFPA 444? Yes. Uh, yeah, well, we can get into that when we get into standards. But uh, to answer your original question there, Chris, um, Additive manufacturing, it's kind of hard to define it. Uh, most people think it's synonymous with 3D printing, which is pretty much the, the gist of what I get. So most of the 3D printers out there are powder bed printers. But essentially, I think it's mostly been defined as building things layer by layer. That's a kind of a generic definition that I've seen out there. I wish I could tell you how, how uh, NFPA defines it, but they don't define it. Uh, that's part of the problem. And then there's other things that occasionally people will throw other things into additive manufacturing besides printing, quote unquote, things like cold spray and things like that, which technically they don't act like a printer, but they kind of, they do build layer by layer. So it's kind of a hard term to define, but generally most people think it's synonymous with 3D printing. Okay. And I think I've made that kind of distinction even in the title of this episode, which is you know, which just kind of shows, like you're saying, it's harder to define. My understanding is, is exactly what you're saying. It's building things layer by layer. This could be really small units. Um, we have these at, at Dalhousie University that are, you know, desktop, both sides of my computer screen. They print little plastic 3D models. 
and then they can be all the way up to you know larger units that are printing engine blocks. By printing, we just mean that layer. So if you think of your 2D printer, it prints on a sheet. This would print a sheet, then print the next sheet, one up in the you know in the upward direction, the next sheet one up in the next direction, and it's used to to really quickly prototype parts, and then it's actually now used to you know to actually create the parts that are going in the the um, equipment that we're building and those sorts of things. So I think that's a great overview of 3D printing. Um, what are some of the materials that are typically involved with the the printer powders or that that are involved in a hazardous way? Well, right now, the, the two materials you got to worry about for the most part, and it, it's 3D printing is ever-changing. That's part of the problem. I, I keep hearing things, but uh, generally, from a combustible dust or explosive dust standpoint, you're going to worry about two powder families, if you want to call it that. You have plastic slash nylon slash polymer. I've heard them called all three of those things, but essentially, it's plastic powder. Um so you've got those type of printers that do plastics, and then you've also got ones that do metals, so actually metal powder. And the powder can vary in terms of the particle size, but typically most of the powder bed printers out there are going somewhere in the range of 30 to 150 microns with the powder. It, again, it can vary, but when I say things are ever-changing, I mean, I, I recently found out that somebody's apparently 3d printing chocolate now so food processing <laughs> yeah so there it's actually making its way into food which i never thought would have been an application for it but hey I, I guess that's an application so if you're gonna 3d print out of cocoa powder that could be another thing sounds like star trek or the jetsons or something where yeah it's <laughs> it's the wild that's one of the things that it's the wild wild west out there in three in additive manufacturing right now so then that brings us kind of to maybe some of the important concepts. So it's it's a wild, wild west. We've seen this in other industries. There's a lot of new things and a lot of things that we probably hadn't thought of as being possible. Um, and when you start introducing things that you haven't thought of as being possible, you know, you got to think about all the safety considerations about that. So in these industries, what are you seeing in terms of, of combustible dust hazards? I mean, obviously you have the the raw material, but what are the what are the pinch points? What are the areas that are are causing a, a lot of issues. Well, I mean, there's there's a lot of things out there with these printers. To, to get into it, and that's a that's a broad question. Um, to get into the hazards out there, the one thing I will say is that there's not a lot of DHAs being done on these. As far as Seam Group and myself, I mean, obviously we've done hundreds of them, but the other ones I've seen out there are just horrible. And the reason they're horrible is because it is completely obvious to me, looking at the people doing this, that they don't understand the hazards of additive manufacturing. And I know in the last podcast, we talked about qualified person and everything. This is a level up for a qualified person. And even the NFPA 484 standard, Chapter 13, kind of says that when it references things like, essentially, you have to do a DHA, but it says that the DHA shall determine the need for nerding you know, dust collection, fire explosion protection, things like that, that puts all the onus on the qualified person at that point. And that is a big deal in the way that was written in NFPA 484. But I think in general, if you looked at it from a safety perspective, and I say this a lot even in conferences when I speak about this, because I speak at some of the 3D printing conferences as well, and I say I think safety is like the ninth thing that people think about when they design these printers. And I'm being very generous when I call it the ninth thing. Yeah, sure. So 
Yeah, because there are so many things wrong with these. And one of the problems I see from people who try to do quote unquote DHAs on these is no one looks at the printers. And that is a major problem. And I think no one looks at these printers because they're scared of them because they, they do take some time and you do have to understand how these printers work. But um, when you just assume that, well, you know what, they're certified, you know, a nationally recognized testing laboratory or a NERDL cer certified them, who cares? They're great. That is a big mistake to make. Because I mean, some of the problems with these printers, for example, is I hear all the time, it's, they're nerded, who cares? What's the big deal? I've actually recently found a couple printer manufacturers, I won't say which ones, that said their printer was a nerded, it was not a nerded. And what I mean by that was, yeah, there's argon flowing into it, but it was actually above the, the limiting oxidant concentration or the LOC. And when I say above, it was a good three to 4% above it. And so even though it may have been operating, you know, at whatever oxygen percent that may seem low to some people, you know, eight or 9%, that was above the LOC. It means there could still be a fire or explosion in there. Yeah. So maybe to give some background on what this looks like, are these, how big are these, these printers? Depending on the manufacturer, it varies, but I mean, these are, these are big machines. The ones that are industrial anyway, you know, it's hard to describe it, but think of six to seven feet tall and, you know, pretty wide. Uh, they vary on the width, but, and then depending on how much powder they can hold, if you have a powder conveying system attached to them, the, the one I just recently dealt with could hold literally a ton of powder, 2000 pounds. So to give the listener an idea, just so we have this, we have a big piece of equipment, it's six to seven feet tall, it's, it's quite wide. They obviously need some sort of, of line to feed the powder in or to store the powder. Um, often it sounds like they're, they're attempting to inert the area inside the equipment where the, I assume the powder gets flowed through and through some type of ejection nozzle. Um, and that's what sort of, if you think of a printer, goes side to side and does the 3D printing application. So is, is that a good kind of description of what this might look like in a general sense? Let's try to lay the groundwork for people that aren't familiar. Yeah, I've seen them. yeah kind of. I mean, we can, we can get into how they load it, which is an issue in and of itself. But, um, you know, in terms of how they load it, if they have a powder conveying module, which is essentially a, for lack of a better term, it's almost like a dust collector, but essentially it's a pneumatic conveying. So they, they convey the powder pneumatically into the printer. Those are generally much cleaner and somewhat safer if they inert them right to get the powder in there otherwise what they do is they literally just take the the ducts out or the containers out of these printers and just dump powder into them that's literally what they're doing but once the powder gets in there if you can imagine typically it's a square and again the the, the dimensions will vary but you know they you can print some decent sized parts and typically you're printing more than one part on it but Essentially, you have powder in, in this uh, powder bed. And again, the size of the powder bed will vary. And then you have a laser. And now there's, uh, there's one type of printer that uses four lasers. But whatever, you have some type of laser that hits the bed and creates a, essentially, they laser weld the part one layer at a time. And basically, a build elevator will drop it after it's been, that one layer has been done. And then a recoder blade, which just think of a windshield wiper, comes across to basically lay a new powder level or layer, and they just repeat the process until they print the part. 
And depending on the part that needs to be printed, it could take 24 to 36 hours, generally on a standardized powder bed. Some of them are faster, but typically that's how those work. There are some newer things out there. There's one that uses an electron beam, which I won't go into that, but that thing is much more sophisticated because that's literally, they're using electrons to do it now. Yeah, additive manufacturing at a, uh, at a atomistic level. Yeah. And then I saw one, there's a robot arm that can do it now that can print a part in 15 minutes, one part anyway. So yeah, this is moving really fast right now. So the technology always changes. Okay. No, I, it's good to get that perspective. And like I said, it kind of sounds like Star Trek, kind of sounds like the Jetsons, but in five years, this is what this, this stuff's going to look like, (laughs) you know, these industry, this industry will be, will be very large and we'll be doing a lot more piece of equipment this way would be be my understanding of where we're headed um, i wanted to highlight a couple so the kind of some of the hazard areas you mentioned in these type of equipment loading so if you're bulk unloading or loading if you're taking bags and dumping them in that's a definitely a you know a, an area that needs to be looked at um, if you're not doing that if you're conveying the the powder in that's also a you know an area that is uh prone to having a hazard the actual machinery itself i'm sure as the powder moves through that's probably a hazard area. And then when it's being laid and you're, you know, shooting lasers at it and doing welds and that sort of stuff, um, any dust cloud that could be generated in that process might be a hazard. Uh, and then actually cleanup. So I'm sure there's dust that's generated through these machines that's probably going through a dust collection system or being picked up or cleaned up in some way afterwards. Um, are there any other specific areas that we think that, that we should be really thinking if you were to do a, well, this may even be too, too much information at this time of the, this time of the industry, but I'm trying to figure out again where these pinch points are, where these areas that that people aren't looking at uh, that could cause a you know a combustible dust fire, flash fire, or explosion. You know, there's there's a lot of things that are wrong um, with with these things. I mean, the one thing I'll say before we get in a little bit more into the hazards is, you know, I've looked at more printers than I can count for pretty much every manufacturer that makes these things, the major ones anyway. And I can honestly tell you, I've never seen a compliant printer. They don't exist. If anybody says they do, they're lying. There's not a printer made right now, whether it be in America, Germany, wherever else they make these printers that comply with the OSHA and FPA standards. They don't exist. Every one of them is out of compliance. That doesn't mean every one of them is unsafe, but that means that there are potential hazards in every printer that everyone has right now. I think that's a good jumping off point to talk about what is the, how is 3D printing and additive manufacturing handled in, in the NFPA and OSHA frameworks today? Let's definitely get into that. The one hazard I would probably mention, just to close up the, the previous discussion that hasn't been mentioned yet, is pr- it's only with metals that you're going to have this problem. And it, it's a little bit of a weird thing that happens here. But essentially, when you have that laser interact with the powder, it creates a, what people call a condensate. That's what the industry calls it. What it really is, is it's a nanoparticulate. It's a nanometal. And these metal printers have their own dust collection systems. They have filters installed there that are typically pulsed with something. Not always, but sometimes they are. But all that nanometal and nanoparticulate goes into these filters. Well, these filters have to be changed you know, depending on how often you're printing it, it could be every every two weeks, it could be every quarter, but you're going to change them more than, more than one time a year. And 
this nano metal, not a lot of people know about it, but the minute you jostle that metal, that nano metal on the filter cartridge in a non-inert environment, it will flash on you. It doesn't need a source of ignition. It does it itself. And I've actually seen that happen firsthand from people removing filters. And it's caused second and third degree burns on the forearms, chest, face, everything. Um, and there's been so many incidents that unfortunately not a lot of them have been reported to you, Chris, that have happened with these. They're, in fact, it's so frequent, people just stop reporting it. Well, that's, uh, we've heard that story before. <laughs> yeah, they, they think it's just part of AM now. Well, you know, you could get burned. And I'm trying to sit in there telling them that no. And a lot of times, some printer manufacturers are better than other in how they design their filter systems. But a lot of times, it's not the facility's fault. It's the way the printer was designed. There's a couple out there that I can tell you that the way they designed them, you couldn't do it safely. They, they, the way they designed their printer, it basically makes it unsafe. So you've got to kind of play with the hazard the best you can. And we've, we're, we've actually started to talk to some of these printer manufacturers about redesigning their filter systems. And we're actually working with clients right now to do that because it, it's just, it's a weird thing that's going on out there, but these flashes occur. Like I typically, I guarantee you one happens every day. At somewhere in outer manufacturing, it's that frequent. Well, I'll share a story. So, um, a number of years ago, when I first started my what was my master's research then, and then my PhD research, we had a a master's student in our laboratory here in in Halifax, and he was doing investigations on the explosion properties of nano aluminum. I think maybe nano titanium, but definitely nano aluminum. And <laughs> so. Just, just this, this goes exactly along with your story. So these powders, you can get them manufactured and use them. There wasn't a lot of literature available, but there were a couple studies done by some Chinese groups. And when you looked at their 20-liter chamber, the pictures of their 20-liter chamber in their papers, the, the tubing going into the chamber, the dispersion system from the reservoir through to the nozzle was all discolored. It was all you know yellows and reds and greens. And we couldn't really figure out why why and you couldn't reach out to the groups because they're you know on the other side of the world and they weren't as connected we weren't as connected as as we would be today maybe i could actually reach out to those groups now but as soon as we started using that nano aluminum we realized why it's because you couldn't disperse it into the 20 liter chamber without it igniting so normally in the 20 liter chamber you you put dust in the dispersion reservoir you pressurize it you open the nozzle um, and because it's pressurized and that comes into the chamber and fills it in creates a cloud of dust, which is then later ignited. That nano-aluminum couldn't go through the tubing to get into the chamber without igniting. Just the friction that was in there was enough to cause it to ignite. So that's why that, those studies had all the discoloration in their tubing, was that they had all these explosions going on when trying to get the dust into the chamber. Um, I'll share another example. So that's one side. The other side is, is um, moisture. So just the moisture content in the air uh, is enough to ignite some of these nano aluminum powders. Um, so if you, you have to, if you're doing testing with them, you have to seal them in bags and make sure there's not air in there. Otherwise, that can cause start to cause a reaction when you actually open the bag to get your sample. You can have a, a fire, a flash fire started in the bag. So it's very, very reactive. It's it's reactive enough to to react with the moisture just in the air, and any levels of friction, like you're saying, or any type of storage can cause it to ignite. So I I fully believe that <laughs> this nano aluminum that you're seeing when you're saying that it's igniting all over the place 
um, because we've seen it in, in literature studies and we've seen it, you know, in some of the research that's been done from, from university groups as well. Um, that's the first I've heard of in the industry, it actually being a, an issue, but it's pretty dangerous stuff. Yeah. And, and a couple of things to, to add on to that. This has happened with, with aluminum. This has happened with titanium. That's the primary metals that are used as far as the combustible ones anyway, in additive manufacturing. And uh, people just don't understand the hazard and they don't understand really what's going on. Cause I've heard people say, well, it's pyrophoric. It's not pyrophoric because the minute it hits air, it doesn't ignite. And I've tried to explain that to people. And then they go, well, all you got to do is bond and ground it. I have literally watched somebody do this when they did a filter change, they bonded and grounded it so much. I, it was like a tank and they, they physically showed me the ohm meter to prove it was bonded and grounded correctly. They took the filter out, it still flashed. Uh, it's not an electrostatic thing. People think it is. I was like, no, it's just the dust. And, and even expanding on that, a lot of people use Inconel 625 and 718, which, is, which are nickel alloys. And when you test these, if you don't put them in a standard 20-liter chamber, they're going to come back as non-explosable. They're no-goes. But the nanometals actually smolder. The nanometal inconel actually smolders. I've never heard of it flashing yet, but it smolders enough that they have to put it out with fire extinguisher. Because people are like, well, inconel is not that really that big of a deal. I go, no, it really needs to be covered by DHA. They go, well, it's not explosive. I go, yeah, at least the filter part needs to be covered. So yeah, it's definitely a dangerous hazard. And unfortunately, just to give you some perspective on this, there's a lot of people in this field I respect that have been doing combustible dust a lot longer than me. And I know of at least three individuals that have done quote unquote AMDHAs, and I'm quoting that because I, I refuse to call them that, where basically what the DHA did is not only did it not look at the printer, it never mentioned one word about the filter media. Not, not one word on that DHA. So that hazard was completely ignored in those DHAs. Yeah, I'm thinking it through. I can I can picture it's like a black box, right? So you say this is okay, that piece is certified, we're gonna ignore that. We're gonna do a DHA on the rest of the facility. When the thing you're ignoring the black boxes is maybe the most hazardous component. And then what you're saying it's two it's two fronts. So we need to not treat it as a black box from the consulting the safety community. But then also the manufacturers need training to improve the black box so it's not so hazardous in the first place. Yeah, and, and I know you asked a little little bit ago about the standards. I mean, what I can tell you is OSHA has no idea on this stuff. Um, I can at least tell you that. They, they, they have enough problems understanding combustible dust. Taking, going to add in manufacturing is like 10 to 15 levels, and I'm being generous, above what you would normally need to understand on combustible dust. In my opinion, it's the most complex DHA you would ever do. There may be more out there, but it's very complex DHA. Uh, we can get into that a little bit later. But NFPA, for right now, I know the new 654 that comes out at some point will have uh, some language in it, I believe, about additive manufacturing, maybe a couple things, nothing real big. So, But that's for the plastic people. But NFPA 484... The new one, which is 2019, which is in effect now, chapter 13 is actually added to manufacturing. So they're the first standard to actually take a shot at having some requirements. When I say first standard, I mean first standard I'm aware of that's even taken a shot at it. 
and that's the, and that chapter is okay. There is a chapter twelve, and that's called nanometals as well. That could apply to some of the filter stuff, but I mean, on the task group I sit on, one of the things I'm going to make sure we do is is address this filter thing one way or another because it doesn't specifically address it right now in the NFPA standard. But so that's kind of where we stand in terms of the standards. Now, if you look at the authorities having jurisdiction, this is a kind of a new thing or kind of a little bit of a weird thing for a lot of people to understand. This may be a reason why people just don't get involved in it or shouldn't get involved in it, in my opinion, is pretty much on 99% of these, these DHAs, the fire marshal or the building code officials are involved or insurance, but typically it's the fire or building code officials. And when I say that, what I mean is they want somebody who is a third party, independent, proven expert, not only in combustible dust, but added to manufacturing to do these DHAs to make sure these hazards are evaluated. And it's most likely not because they understand the hazards, because my, my expertise, I don't think they do. It's because you're storing so much powder on site that you scare them. Because I, I, the, you know, standard AM operation, you're going to probably store at least 100,000 pounds of powder. Um, I've actually had somebody store a million in one, in one location, a million pounds of powder. Yeah, I, I just added that to our list of potential hazard, hazards, the storage of raw material. Yeah, and what a lot of people don't realize is there's no limit to how much you can store. People think there is. There is not. They need to read the building code. The building and fire code has a combustible dust thing on there, but it doesn't list a quantity. There is no maximum allowable quantity. I hate to ask this question because I probably know the answer, but is there any requirement on what you can store beside the large quantity of fuel that you have sitting there? Uh, there may be some stuff that kick in depending on what it is. I mean, the way the table's set up, it has stuff on, on there like, you know, flammable solids. I've had some people say, well, powder's a flammable solid. No, it's not. Sodium's a flammable solid. Combustible, this powder is a combustible dust. And so people get that confused. But there are there may be some requirements to kick in depending on what you want to store, like cardboard and stuff like that next to it. But generally, most people put this in its own room or in cabinets or on shelves or something. But you've got to, you've got to have a lot of powder on site on, to, to do this additive manufacturing. Okay. Yeah, the reason I ask is... Not necessarily combustible dust, but uh, combustible liquids. We've seen some of the some of the really, really, really large explosions out of out of China have been due to storing. You know, they have they have a cargo storage, so very large facilities storing all these different types of materials. And there's a lot of regulation in place saying what you can store beside each other. Is if you want to store and fuel on this side and then oxidizer on this side, and you have an explosion, those two mix. Um, that's what's led to some of these really, really, really catastrophic, you know, a thousand times larger than other explosions that we see happening. I see the same thing. If you store this aluminum powder and then an oxidizer beside it, and then, you know, some cardboard and some stuff that burns really nice and quick beside that, uh, it could it could lead to a really kind of dangerous situation if something ignites anywhere in the facility and, and gets to, to all that kind of storage location. So just the regulating, I don't know if regulating is the right word, but Come with ideas on how much you should be able to store is, is certainly one thing, but also how to store that and what you can store with it are all all areas that uh, that I just from your discussion consider as open 
you know, open difficulties or open challenges that, that we should be looking at. Yeah. And, and if the DHA is done right, it would take all that into account. I can tell you the DHAs that we do for additive manufacturing take all that into account. Unfortunately, the other ones, I, they don't even mention powder storage. I was going to ask how many are actually doing DHAs from your, your um, just, you know, what you, you've seen is, is it pretty common for a, a additive manufacturer to say, hey, I need a DHA or um, a lot of them still, you know, don't know, don't know what a DHA is? It's more common than on the non-AM side, believe it or not. And it's because the fire and building code officials get involved. They make them do it or else they don't get building permits. They will literally not let them turn the machines on. And I've actually had cases where the fire marshal found out about it after the printers were in there and they shut them down. They basically said, you're not allowed to operate anymore until you, until you get these hazards at least somewhat addressed. So I don't, I don't know why they're taking such a, a hard stance on it. Like I said, I have, I think it's the powder storage is only I can, I can figure, but you know, plus these are, multi-million dollar printers so these are you can't miss these things they're big uh the the industrial ones so you know it's kind of hard to say but um again i I even had some fire marshals come to me on some some other people who did quote-unquote dhas and say look we don't think this is adequate and they're right it's not i mean to give you an idea of how complex the dha for additive manufacturing is on a standard AM DHA, I typically read about five to ten thousand pages. Sorry, say that again. Five to ten thousand pages is the is the length of the DHA. No, that's how much material I have to read okay. on a standard additive manufacturing DHA to get the background required to yep. be able to um, knowledgeably. Yeah, because basically, you know, there was one here recently where I was dealing with several printer manufacturers, and at one point, I was dealing with eight different countries including the United States. I had to call all these countries to figure out how do they design this? And a lot of these answers that you think are really, really easy, like, hey, what are the set points of your oxygen sensors? The, that sometimes can take a month to get an answer on that question. And so, you know, you've got to, if you're going to do this stuff right in terms of battery manufacturing, you've got to read the manuals. And some of those are, you know, thousand pages long. You got to read them. Um, you got to read that stuff. You got to look at all the building codes. You got to look at the fire codes. And I'm not just talking international, I'm talking state fire codes because sometimes they're different. You've got to look at all those OSHA standards that are out there. You've got to look at what NFPA has. I mean, a lot of people don't realize that there is some 3D printing stuff. It's a little bit in the FM data sheet, FM 776. There's some, there's some additive manufacturing stuff in there as well, but it's a very intensive process to get through one of these and if you do it wrong, especially if the fire marshal's involved, you're liable. So anybody who, that's the, I guess the best advice I would give out there, or especially for any outside entity who thinks about doing this, if you do it wrong, I've actually heard of fire marshals and building code people not only shutting down people, but threatening litigation. Yeah, that's a, that's a ton of information. You've actually increased my respect for just the you know immensity of the hazards that can come from this type of application, and a couple of key things that you mentioned that that even add to that the fact that the building inspectors and and fire marshals are are paying so much attention, even if they're not, even if not all of them are equipped to to be able to provide solutions and figure out the right answer, the fact that they're paying attention 
whether or not it's the amount of fuel that's there or, you know, the, the, the cost of the applications or that just goes to show the, the heightened severity that, that is possible. That, then there's all these open challenges, things like manufacturers not understanding the challenge, which we talked about before on the podcast and needing to be able to, to create machines that are safer than the training, the people that are going in and doing the analysis to, to not treat as a black box, to try to figure out these issues. It sounds like there's a lot of open challenges. And one question I just wrote down, and, and maybe this is what we'll kind of close off on. So this has been a, a great conversation. It's probably enough to make uh, some of our listeners head spin with, with the, the thoughts that are going on. Um, but are there, you know, if there are a couple open areas that say a re, say a university group comes to me and says, uh, Chris, we have a, we have two PhD students and a master's student. We want to start a research program. You know, what, what topics should we look at? And, and it sounds like 3d printing is a, is an, is a topic or an area that, that might need some work. Um, so there's university research or standard organizations like NFPA or even the associations involved with 3d printing or OSHA. There's all these, these different players, but what are the open challenges that if, if I can magically get these groups in a, in one room to start tackling them, what are the, the big issues or the, if you think of 80, 20 rule, what's the, what's the single thing we could do or the couple things we could do to get 80% of the issues out of the way? What are these kind of open challenges? I know that's a big question, but I was trying to figure out where to, where we should go next as a community. And I, I'd probably say the, the biggest challenge out there is the lack of data on the, the nanoparticulate or nanometal or condensate or whatever fancy name they come up with next for it. That is definitely an issue because even if you look at what NFPA 484 did in chapter 12, there's a requirement in there that for a nanometal, you have to test it. And I'll never forget when I saw that, I didn't know that was coming. I actually called some of the 484 members and I go, are you crazy? You're going to get people burned. I go, how do you expect them to test this? And additive manufacturing, I, and I told F484 under no circumstances, I'm going to tell my clients to ignore it. And if somebody has a problem with it, I'll tell them why. But that's one of the things. I mean, I don't know what you get out of testing this on the AM side. We already know it's a flash fire hazard. What, what do we need a KST for? I think from testing it and doing a study on it from the labs, I've been trying to say this for the last two years, that I wish someone would actually write a white paper on this to kind of figure out, is this stuff pyrophoric? What makes it go? Because until we really understand that, and again, I have, I've dealt with it enough that I'd like to think I understand it, but I'm not taking it to the actual level that you guys would take it and the labs would take it or students would take it. And I really wish someone would do that. I think that would be one hell of a study, to be honest with you. Yeah, we've done some of that work at Dalhousie, but I, I concentrates, you know, it was, it was sort of one master's student and, and they did, uh, you know, one set of material and, and the experimental difficulties were, were, were uh, many <laughs> just yeah. you know, like, like we've already mentioned some of those issues. So, but, so I think that the better characterization of the materials is definitely a great open challenge. And that's something that I could see that some of our listeners may pick up on and, and you may see more activity through university groups. Um, I would say just from the experience I've seen that you do need to have a, an extra layer of of caution because you can you can get you know a, a student or even uh, somebody at a at a commercial testing lab you know burned by this stuff it is is quite dangerous so we need to have that extra level just characterizing like you said pyrophoric how it reacts what it reacts with 
Why is it reacting? Um, some other open challenges that, that we've kind of identified here are just the different hazard areas in, in additive manufacturing and 3D printing applications from, you know, from soup to nuts, from bulk material storage through to uh, the things printed and how do we clean up the, the remnants of it. And then everything in the middle, <laughs> you kind of highlighted everything as a hazard in the middle between that. Yeah, I think, you know, from my opinion, the couple things here that I want to throw out there just for, I consider these myths that I've heard. I've heard some people say, you know, this is similar to the semiconductor industry and we can regulate ourselves. That is a myth, that that is a mistake. If people think in this industry, they can regulate themselves. They can't. I can tell you that for four and a half years, they can't. They don't understand the hazards. They there's a lot of brilliant people in additive manufacturing. They, they do a lot of stuff that I can't even explain how they print some of these parts. It's so complex. But then you start to break it down to the safety aspects and it all gets thrown out the window. In my opinion, this industry can't regulate itself. The other thing I've heard is that, well, the easiest thing to do is just have the nationally recognized testing laboratories. Let's just have them certify it and that way, that way it'll be safe. They're trying to do that now and they're failing. And it's because they, a lot, there, there's a couple of them that actually do what they call a PHA, but then I've inquired of, well, don't you look at dust? They go, no. I go, it's not even a PHA then. I was like, if you don't look at dust, you can't call it a PHA. It's a P minus DHA. Yeah. I was like, and so there, and so that, that's another thing that you can't just take this, uh, you know, whatever certification you get on these printers as you know, that's the Bible, everything's safe. That is just a misnomer. But, you know, in my opinion, what we need, and I've started some discussions with NMPA on this, is, you know, having the stuff in 484 is great. Don't get me wrong. I think that's a good start. I honestly think we need an entire NFPA standard on additive manufacturing. I think it should be a standalone standard because the industry is going that far because even if you look at the makeup of 484, the committee, I mean, there's a lot of smart people on there. But I think there's only one printer manufacturer on that committee. And there's no added manufacturer users on that committee. If, or if there are, there's very few of them. There really needs to be a better, like a whole committee dedicated to this that has, you know, obviously people like myself on it that have dealt with it from a consulting side, but also people like my clients who do this day in, day out. They, they need to have a say in it. The printer manufacturers need to have a say in it. And then it even extends beyond that. That's what people don't understand is that the powder producers really need to clean themselves up. The people who make the powder for 3D printing, because there's incidents occurring in, on these powder uh, plants that, again, unfortunately, Chris, they're not reported to you a lot. But the good news about that is they're starting to change because the now that all these big billion dollar companies are doing 3D printing, they're exerting pressure on the powder people because it's, it interrupts their supply chain. Yeah, that's that's a great summary. And I think that's a good place to leave off because there's there's a ton of work to do here. And I can already, I mean, ideal world, we'd have, a, I think, a, a university group that specializes in combustible dust, a university group that specializes in additive manufacturing, some representatives from the additive manufacturing, so like the additive manufacturing industry, regulators, and then experts that are industrial experts in combustible dust like yourself, uh, people from folks from NFPA. Ideally, we could set up a coalition between those groups plus the powder producers 
and say, okay, how are we, how are we tackling this on a large scale? We get all of them to sit down and not have too many people in the room such that we can't get anything done, which we may have already crossed that threshold with that number of people. Um, that might be a way to tackle it, but there's a, there's a lot of issues. And I really appreciate you coming on the show. As always, you shared so much information that my, my head feels like it's going to explode a bit, pun intended. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's a, it's an important area because I, we, we are seeing fires reported. We are seeing explosion reported, um, titanium and aluminum for sure. Uh, and my, my guess before this episode is that it's a very, very, very small fraction of what's actually happening. And, and from talking to you, I, I think it's even a smaller fraction. And from the experience I've seen of these nanopowders that, you know, you, you don't, it's not about a 10 kilojoule igniter anymore. It's about just moving the stuff and the friction alone or, or something else can, can cause to a night. So it's pretty, it's pretty dangerous stuff. Yeah. The, I'll, I'll just leave off with this. Um, you know, the standards can't keep up with the technology. That's the part of the problem with AM. I mean, we're, we're, we're far behind. I'll admit that we just can't keep up with what these brilliant people out there are doing. And they truly are brilliant. That's why I think having standard like that would help. But the other thing I'll say is that unfortunately I think these incidents are only going to increase because the progression has always been from titanium to aluminum. I have some clients that are actually talking about using magnesium in printers now, powdered magnesium and also tantalum and niobium and some of these other weird metals. I already know some of the orthopedic people actually use powdered zirconium. And so those are actually much more hazardous than titanium, and in some cases, aluminum. So, so unfortunately, yeah, I, I can see this. Actually, the incidence probably increasing. Actually, I think that's a you know a, a great well not a great place to leave it off because I think I think you're right. I think the more will happen. I think the severity we'll see some really severe ones come as well. Unfortunately, just with the just because like you're saying things are moving so fast that it's hard to keep up. I'm sure for the industry and for, for the regulators and for just the, the people that are writing the standards overall. So uh, with that, I just like to say thank you for giving us this really detailed overview. We may have to make this a reoccurring three or six month <laughs> podcast stint here where we talk about updates in this stuff because I think that's how fast it's going to change. Um, but as always, I really appreciate you having on the show and I, I really look forward to the next time we get to talk about this and, and other topics as well. All right. No problem. Thank you. So in that episode, you're listening to Jason Reason, and we were talking about uh, doing an interview about explosion and fire safety in 3D printing applications. Jason shared a ton of immense knowledge and background in this area, so much so that you know it left me a little bit dumbstruck on just some of the some of the different hazards that we're looking at and how fast things are changing. And I didn't get the full you know the summary of all the things we covered in, so we just covered so much. But in this type of application, it really is as as I mentioned, soup to nuts from well, even going back farther than we mentioned or, or Jason mentioned towards the end, but the manufacturing of the powder, the shipping of the powder to the user, the storage on site of that powder. Then you have the whole 3D printing piece of equipment, which is needs to be manufactured correctly, safely, needs to be installed correctly, safely, needs to be used correctly, safely. And then, you know, expelling and, and getting rid of exhausting the dust and probably, you know, also discarding and, and trash that whole process is pretty complex. And as you, as it changes, as we add different materials, we move from titanium to aluminum to magnesium to zinc to more, uh, you know, more exotic metals that it, it's going to continue to get harder. So Jason sharing his insight and, and knowledge through his area and really gives us a good jumping off point as a community to 
to start to tackle some of these problems. So I really appreciate him coming on the show and sharing that. Uh, if you have any questions about this episode, you can you can leave them in the show notes at dustsafetyscience.com slash 33. I'm going to talk to Jason, Jason specifically. Um, we'll certainly have his contact information there as well. Uh, if you have any questions about 3D printing, about additive manufacturing, or about any other topics that you want to see on the podcast, you can go to dustsafetyscience.com slash ask, A-S-K, um, and you can put those in there and we'll we'll bring somebody on um, to to talk about those. Uh, that's it for this week. As always, I, I want to thank you for listening to the Dust Safety Science Podcast. Hope you have a, a safe and productive week ahead. And I really appreciate the work you're doing, keeping industries safe that are handling combustible dust every, every day in these industries. So thank you for that. Mm-hmm.